haven't yet, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Ruth touched on a few of the verses that we're going to be considering this morning, reading through the scriptures uh, together in worship. We're going to read 11 through 15. Chapter 2, 11 through 15. Sort of midway through a paragraph as we're continuing on or picking up where we uh, left off last week, um, considering how incredible Christ is and sufficient for us. We're going to see that in high measure here. It's an incredible passage talking about how remarkable His work in accomplishing our salvation truly is. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In Him, the Him is Jesus, just so we're all good on that. In Jesus... Uh, 11 is in the middle of the paragraph. There it is. In Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God, as we come to your word, this is remarkable work Christ has accomplished for us. You have accomplished in us, and yet you used the church to accomplish in the lives of others, other people, and we would pray that that would even happen this day. Turn our hearts to Christ. May we find in him one power, powerful and mighty and gracious to save, and may that transform our lives. As we come to your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Why do humans experience awe? A-W-E, awe. Why do we experience it? Two psychology professors sought to answer that question, and they shared their work in a New York Times article a few years back. What compelled them to go about investigating why we experience awe is because we, humans, are the only mammals that experience a positive sense of awe, the positive goosebumps, if you will. Other animals or mammals experience the sense of fear, But we are the only ones who experience a positive awe, a positive goosebumps. We experience things that cause joy and wonderment. Here's what they said. Years ago, one of us argued that awe is the ultimate collective emotion, for it motivates people to do things that enhance the greater good through many activities that give us goosebumps. Collective rituals, celebration, music, dance, religious gatherings, and worship all might help shift our focus from our narrow self-interest to the interests of the group to which we belong. And went on to share a little bit about their research. Some of this research, they said, was conducted on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley, which has a spectacular grove of Tasmanian blue gum eucalyptus trees 
some with heights exceeding 200 feet, a potential source of everyday awe for anyone who walks by. So we took participants there, had them either look up into the trees or look at the facade of a nearby science building for just one minute. Then a minor quote-unquote accident occurred, actually a planned part of the experiment. A person stumbled and dropped handfuls of pens. Get this. Participants who spent the minute looking up at the tall trees, that's not long, but long enough, we found to be filled with awe, picked up more pens to help the other person. Basically, experiencing awe can be a transformative power in our manner of living. But the research continued. It revealed that most people experience very little awe in their lives today, even as technology enhances our lives. They go on to say this. You can make the case that our culture today is awe-deprived. Adults spend more and more time working and commuting and less time outdoors and with other people. Camping trips, picnics, midnight skies are foregone in favor of working weekends and late at night. Attendance at art events, live music, theater, museums, galleries has dropped over the years. This goes for children too. Arts and music programs and schools are being dismantled in lieu of programs better suited to standardized testing, time outdoors, and for novel unbound exploration or sacrifice for resume-building activities. We believe that all deprivation, two psychologists, we believe that all deprivation has had a hand in a broad societal shift that has been widely observed over the last 50 years. People have become more individualistic, more self-focused, more materialistic, and less connected to others. I don't disagree with a single thing they said. And Christians are not immune to this. Even though we have the most awe-inspiring experience any human could ever share in. The grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings about our salvation. Author and speaker Paul David Tripp coined this struggle that we as Christians have as all amnesia, that we're all amnesiacs, that he goes on and he argues that we are a terribly forgetful people, forgetful of what God has accomplished for us, to us, and in us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you notice, either in your bulletin or up on the screen, the title of the sermon this morning is, Just In Case You Forgot. Just in case you came in here this morning forgetting the awe-inspiring, overwhelming, incredible, remarkable, life-changing, eternal, infinite, amazing work of Jesus Christ to save your soul. Just in case you forgot. Maybe you're a little low in your awe component in your life. And so hopefully we will be reminded of just how awesome and great Jesus is as we consider this passage this morning. We need this gospel-drenched awe to transform our hearts, our heads, our hearts, and our manner of living as followers of Christ and as a church together. 
And I want to say, I'm, I'm pushing all of my chips in on that Jesus is worth that. That he's, he can handle the, the expectations that come with putting all our all, if you will, on him. Because of this, we cannot, because of the passage I just read, we cannot ever overstate or overestimate the weighty, powerful, overwhelming greatness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can't. I want to spend the rest of my life trying, but I know that I won't ever be able to. Can't overstate or overestimate how remarkable Jesus is. And so to consider our passage, that was a very long intro, I know, but it was to set this so that we would have hearts eager for all and that we would find in Jesus the one worthy of all the all. And so this morning, as we consider this passage, we want to see that why we cannot overstate the greatness of Christ is found in the significance of what Christ has done. I read it, you heard it, you were reading right along. What you read is overwhelmingly significant. And we cannot overstate the greatness of Christ because of that. And then secondly, because of the significance of what Christ has done, we'll see that he is sufficient for us. The sufficiency of Christ for the church. I'm going to preach that until there's no more air left in my lungs. Jesus is sufficient for you right now. He is sufficient for us as a church. He lacks nothing. And when we have him through faith, we lack nothing. So let us consider that together this morning. All right, first of all, the significance of what Christ has done. So again, Paul, just a quick context. He's writing this letter. It's really such an incredible vision document for the church, what the church to believe and how the church should feel and how the church should live. And in the process of doing this, he's holding up Christ. Last chapter, in chapter 1, we had this most incredible picture of who Jesus is in the sense of of like he is over everything, all things. There isn't anything outside of everything that is outside of Jesus. All things are under Jesus. He is over it all. And he's got the power to rescue and reconcile the people of God, the church. There isn't anything lacking in Christ It's through Christ we go from the domain and and, and oppression of spiritual darkness into the kingdom of God through the Son. This is Jesus. There's nothing lacking in Him, and yet the church, in the history of the church, is always sort of hitting two, getting assaulted in two ways. One, from the world around, wanting to either distract or discourage us from following Jesus, or from diversions from within, theological diversions or relational ones. Church is always sort of hitting, getting hit on those two fronts. And so Colossians is written to deal with the inside sort of distractions, the inside diversions of bad teaching that's taking the church's focus off of Jesus and putting it on something else, something that we contribute to this. And, and, and Paul is just, by holding up how awesome Jesus is, is, is also sort of implying very clearly You can't do anything to add to what Jesus has done. And if there isn't a passage that makes that abundantly clear, it's the one we just read. There isn't a single thing that we can do to help Jesus out in what he accomplished for us here. Not one thing. 
So don't divert your focus. You're all off of Christ. He's worth it all. And so it is it, the significance of what Christ has done. It's so amazing because it shows us that he accomplishes what we could never do. Not even one thing on this list of things that we just rattled through in verses 11 through 15. We can't do any of it. He did it all to the full. And the effects of it is eternal. And we can't do anything. What we find in this passage, as you work through it, in the English, you can see it there, but in the the original you find 11 gospel-shaped verbs in our passage this morning. There are 11 of them. You're thinking, oh boy, we're getting an 11-point sermon here. Yep. So get some white space. 11 gospel-shaped verbs where we see God accomplishing through Jesus awe-inspiring, grace-saturating, redeeming works. The verbs have God as the doer of them. This is amazing. This is remarkable. Everything that you read here is God is doing it. Not us. We are totally passive in this. We are the recipients of the verbs. I mean, just let the, the gospel grammar like wash over your head and your heart. Maybe you came in here thinking that you had to be here in order to muster up a little bit more good to outweigh the, a whole lot of bad maybe you struggled with over this last week. And I want you to hear right now that this isn't a cheap grace. It comes very expensively as our passage here shows us. It is a full grace though. It is God accomplishing for you what you could never, ever, 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 ever do. This is remarkable. And looking at these 11 redemptive acts of God on our behalf, we also, in the process, learn a great deal about ourselves. So that both what God does and our true condition reveal the awe-inspiring significance of the person and work of Christ. So we're going to walk through these quickly, mind you. We're going to look through what God does. And some of these verbs sort of couple up with some of the other verbs. And so as we move through these 11 verbs, we're also going to touch on four realities about who we are. So both what we see God doing and what they communicate about us together show just how ridiculously amazing Jesus is. Okay? You following with me on this? Hopefully it won't be too convoluted as we work through this passage, but I want to take time just in case we forgot, just in case we lose sight of what it is that we have in Christ and in the gospel. So let's jump in. First, we find um, in verse 11, in him you were circumcised, an action done to you with a circumcision not uh, made, made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So something happened to you, not by your power or the power of another human being, but by the power of God. There's a circumcision of your heart. There is something that has happened here that is amazing in what God has done. To be circumcised is to be set apart, to be made clean so as to draw near. Get that. 
As we think back and look back into the Old Testament, the aspect of this is a setting apart, a saying that you belong to God and that you are now able to then sort of draw near and experience that sort of fellowship with Him. Think of the Old Testament temple worship system. It is the removal of what prevents your acceptableness before God. It is the removal of what prevents your acceptableness before God. So that means God is removing what blocks you from being accepted and welcomed and belonging to Him. And He does that in your heart. This is referring to the salvation secured by Christ. It is by Christ we are set apart. It is by Christ we are made clean so as to draw near to God. And this is not by our hands. God has done this. And to further drive that home, look at verse uh, 12. And we'll put these verbs with the circumcised of the heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. That we are then buried and raised with Christ. That when we have faith in Jesus as our only means of the, the, the removal of what prevents us to be with God, as we have faith in Jesus, we're united to Him. We're united in His life. His righteousness counts for us. We're united in His death. His death pays the penalty for our sin. And we're, reunited, we're united in His resurrection, His victory over sin and death. We are united to Jesus. So therefore, what Jesus experiences and accomplishes then counts for us. So, God is removing the barriers between us and Him, and He is uniting us to Christ so as that we are fully and completely and totally and eternally accepted and welcomed to God. Faith in Jesus unites us to Him. So that what he does counts for us. Now what do those three verbs tell us about us? Well, this is what it says to us first. Our true real condition apart from Christ is one of relational brokenness with God. We are separated from God. We are relationally, spiritually separated. We're not on God's team. We're actually opposing God in our thoughts, our affections, and our our living. And we are powerless to overcome the brokenness brought on by our sin. Now, we've all tasted some of this in just our human relationships. You don't have to raise your hand for this. It's actually kind of maybe a painful thing. We've experienced broken relationships, haven't we? We've experienced a broken relationship because of maybe the actions or words or things that we did. And so that really buries us. We know the feeling of what it means to hurt another person, right? And we know the ongoing uh, sort of implications of that and seeing that relationship broken. And we also know what it means to be powerless to fix it. Take that and multiply it by a hundred bazillion and that's what has happened because of our sin. We, have, we are totally broken and separated, unable to approach God, to be welcomed by Him. 
broken. Now, taking what we just see in these two verses and what they reveal about our condition, we can just stop the sermon here and just rejoice in awe over what Christ has done. Christ has removed the, the brokenness that created this barrier between us and God so that we could approach him and like in the Old Testament, worship him where God and man dwell together. We experience that in Christ now. It's amazing what God has done to overcome something we could never overcome. But the sermon's not stopping there, and we're going to keep going. Because there's more. This is crazy. There's more. Look what it says here. And you were dead in your trespasses, non-circumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. God made us alive together with Christ. That you are now alive, spiritually alive to God in this age between cross and glory because you have been united to Christ through faith. And then when Christ returns one great and glorious day, we will be united spiritually and physically, sort of the spiritual and resurrected life in Christ. That This death does not win. That death and separation from God doesn't get the last word. Life gets the last word. Made alive together with Christ. Not made alive sort of autonomous to everything, but no, alive together with Jesus. Knowing that the consequence of our sin and flesh is death. The consequence of our relational brokenness with God is death and separation. But now the consequence is overcome because of Jesus and all those in Jesus have now been restored and resurrected and made new and made alive. How does he go about doing that? Well, graciously and powerfully. And he begins to tackle the things that continue to be the obstructions between us and God. And look what it says next. Forgave our trespasses. So he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all, forgiven us all our trespasses or sins. This having forgiven us is, again, something being done to you. Having been made alive, something done to you. God has forgiven you. Where? At the cross. It is a one-time historical moment where the sacrificial death of Christ brings about all our means of forgiveness. It is a one-time event in history that has eternal implications. That is how powerful the cross is. Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross every year, once a time, you know, once a year. And to sort of in the Old Testament, the priest would have to go in on the Day of Atonement. That happened every year. And then guess what? The priest would get old, and then what would he do? He'd die, and then they would have to replace him. And then he would do that again and again and again. Guess what happened to that priest? Dead. And they had to replace him, and then again and again. Hebrews, the, the Paul, or, uh, Paul, <laughs> um, maybe Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews, inspired and encouraged by Paul, um, 
lays this out for us. There was something about it that just had to keep going. What Christ did on the cross happened one time. And it was so overwhelmingly sufficient that it was enough to forgive you of all of your sins. You didn't even exist then. But all of your sins forgiven through the one-time historical moment, the sacrificial death of Christ. So what does this, what do these verses tell us? Well, it tells us a very important thing about us. Number two thing that it says about us. Needing to be made alive together with Christ and needing our sins forgiven says that we are spiritually dead. What does it say about us? We have spiritual deadness. We are spiritual zombies. We are the walking spiritual dead. That's what we are. That's what we are. Apart from Christ, that's what we are. We are dominated by sin. And what that brings is a thorough deadness in our lives. And what I mean by thorough deadness, it's impacted everything about us, every faculty of us. What makes us human is spiritually dead because of sin. Your thoughts, your feelings, your motives, your aspirations, your words, your actions, your life, the totality of it, you are thoroughly dead. There isn't anything in you just beating a little bit of life for God. The deadness is everywhere. And we are unable to do anything because we are spiritually dead. If salvation was relying on something from us in the equation, there would be no one ever saved. The only thing we bring to the salvation equation is all of the negative of our sin. We bring no positive. There is no plus sign in front of our name. It's a negative. We are the red. We're in red. We have nothing to give or to bring. And Christ brings all the riches of heaven and glory and grace and righteousness. And He plops it down on the cross and He says, paid in full. There is nothing left for you to pay. Not one ounce, not one penny. I've paid it all. There's nothing left. So if salvation is ever based on our works, do something else with your Sunday mornings. I mean it. We're 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 to be the most pitied. No, no, Christ has paid it all. He is our means of forgiveness. God makes us alive, makes us alive in Him and with Him. So let's keep going. How does He go about paying it all? Well, that's the next grouping of verbs that we find here. So how does He go about having forgiven us of our trespasses? How does He pay for that? What is it that he does? Well, he cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he canceled the debt, he set it aside, and he nailed it to the cross. Those verbs are actions being done for us. These are not actions that we are cooperating with. We don't have any resources of our own. We can't do any of this. So what does he say in canceling our debt? Well, there was a certificate. 
It was a legal document stating what you owed. You, you couldn't ever get around it. There was no loophole. Legally, you are saddled with a debt that you could never pay in a hundred times, in a hundred lifetimes. And so this certificate gets canceled because it's paid in full, having forgiven us of our trespasses. It's a paying in full dynamic that Jesus accomplishes for us. So this certificate that weighs us down with something that we could never manage on our own, there was no payback system, no interest, low interest rate dynamic that we could jump in on. There was nothing that we could do other than just crumble under the weight of this certificate, this debt. Jesus was so resourceful in his perfect righteousness and grace and power for you that he had so much in the bank, if you will, that this certificate was paid in full. You had a hundred lifetimes you could never pay back. And then, I love this, he set it aside. Now, you might be reading that and not thinking anything of this. Have you ever felt the weight and burden of having to pay something back. Are you a 20-something and you're looking back at your college career and shaking your fist in anger at it? (laughs) You ever made a financial decision and circumstances in life went sideways and now you're weighted with this? Have you ever felt that? Did it feel like it was an unmovable object that you would never get out from under? God, through the power and grace and goodness and awe-inspiring awesomeness of Jesus, took that and just set it aside. This weight of our sin and its penalty, God, it is so powerful. It It feels like something that we can't even breathe under. And he just set it aside. As if that weight was like a feather. Please don't miss that. It was so insurmountable for us. A weight we couldn't budge, let alone carry. And because of the riches of grace and the righteousness of Christ and his power, God just sets it aside. Paid it for. It's a nothing now. then he takes it and he nails it to the cross. The greatest transactional payment in the history of history. He nails it to the cross. Christ pays for it, pays the debt, he pays it in full. The certificate is is now stamped on the bulletin board of accomplished. Paid in full. You bear it no more. Yo, I can't get through it as well with my soul. Because by the time we get to verse 3, verse 3 is verse three is always the best verse in any hymn. Just as a record. It's true. It's true. It's true. In verse 3, and it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. 
is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Not, not in part, but the whole. There's nothing left for you to bear because Christ has paid it in full and nailed it to the cross. And what does it say about us? It says, apart from Christ, we are burdened with a debt we cannot pay. And He pays it in full. We are burdened with a debt that we cannot pay. We do not have the resources. We can't pay back with a life that's more good than bad. You can't clean your ledger. Many of you in here are young enough to have experienced the totality of growing up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And in that Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a character, Black Widow, whose whole character arc is spent on her paying back all the bad that she's done. She has read on her ledger, she says, in 17 of the movies, it feels like. And she has to like pay it back, she thinks. She's going to do as good now to overcome all of the horrible things that she did or had happened to her. So she looks to repay back the red ledger, and we see how that story unfolds and what it costs her. But guess what? You're not Black Widow, and you don't live in the Marvel movie universe. You live here in reality, and you can't pay it back. You don't have enough resources. There's no amount of good that you could ever do to overcome all the bad in your ledger. There will always be red in the ledger until that red is the red of the blood of Christ who shed on the cross where you will no longer bear your sin, where it is paid in full. And that is where we find our resource to overcome a debt that we could never pay. And somehow we sometimes think that that's what we have to do. we got to do more good to overcome all the bad in our life. God does want you to live in a way that brings Him glory. Yes. He does want you to grow in righteousness. Yes. He does want to see more and more of character of Christ in you. Yes. That's called sanctification. That's what He's doing over the course of your life. That's His everyday goal for you is to grow in Christ-likeness. Yes, yes, and yes. But we don't think of that in the same way of you coming to know Christ. God graciously and powerfully and most radically and awe-inspiringly rescues you from you because you don't have enough to give. You don't have enough strength. You don't, know, you don't have enough good. He has to rescue you from you. And that's what we have in Christ. The one who overcomes of debt we could never pay. Now, quickly, this last run of verbs that we find here. He disarms the rulers and authorities, puts them to open shame, and triumphs over them. All three of them are dealing with an enemy that we could never overcome. All three of them are dealing with evil. Evil that is operating in a way that we cannot see, but we definitely can feel. And in Jesus, not only does he deal with our relational brokenness, not only does he deal with our spiritual deadness, not only does he deal with our penalty of our sin, the debt that it occurs, he also, in Jesus, deals with an enemy we could never, ever, ever touch or overcome. And he whips him in such a way that he puts him to open shame. We could never overcome the enemies of God, ever. And in this disarming verb, 
You have to have enough authority and ability and power to do it, and we don't. We can't disarm evil. We don't have the authority or power to do that. Jesus does, and Jesus did. And to put something to open shame, it's, a, it's one of those ironic reversals that we find in the Bible. Christ was exposed and shamed at the cross, but the cross is God's means of exposing and bringing shame, open shame, to those that are in opposition to him. What looked like victory for evil was really its means of defeat. And this is through Christ. And in that, it is a leave no doubt triumphing over evil. So what does this tell us about us? Well, it says that we are under we are under an overwhelming enemy that we cannot defeat. We are under an overwhelming enemy that we cannot defeat. So when you take all these verbs in this passage and all of what they say about what is real about us, and then you find that Jesus is the thing, the thing, Jesus is the one who overcomes what we could never overcome, pays what we could never pay, brings life that we couldn't generate, and, and restores us to what has been broken. If you see that in Christ, that you have that one thing that will feed your all for the whole of all of history. Because this is what God has purposed in history. And we cannot forget this. This is awesome. Awe-inspiring. It impacts our view of God, of this world, of the meaning and purpose of life, and how we live it out. How we live it out together in the church. And the Colossians were getting impacted and distracted by teaching that took the attention and affection away from the awesome God who by grace accomplishes us for us such a great salvation in Christ. We cannot forget this. Cannot forget this. Truly is all inspiring. And it is sufficient for us, the church. And that's what we find here quickly. The sufficiency of Christ for the church that we would have an awe that transforms. So I know I didn't do justice to this rich passage. Like We could spend a month of Sundays on it. I really mean that. But as we move through it, just even feeling its bigness and what it is that Jesus accomplished and overcomes for us, I want to ask you, is it awesome? When you hear that, when you wrestle with that, when you read it, is it awesome for you? There are many reasons why we tend to be all amnesiacs. Many. It's chaotic life that we live in with no margins. And so you just sort of like go through like the week and then into the next one and then into the next one. It's hard to have all in the midst of chaos. Or maybe our lives are challenged. They have challenging circumstances that have a distracting or discouraging effect on our hearts. So it's hard for us to look past the immediate circumstances of our lives to see this big, incredible reality of what God has done for us in Christ. Maybe we have a conflict with sin that seems to so easily entangle and strangle our hearts that we don't look to Christ. We're, we're stuck under shame. Or maybe we just struggle with that cold isolation from depression, beat down, this war that happens in our own heads and hearts. We struggle with all. Struggle to see that there's anything awesome. So because of that, we need to be a church 
that holds up the awesomely good news of Jesus through the whole, the totality of what we are as a ministry together. That we don't show up and give people laws. Do good, do more good, do gooder. We show up and give people grace. Look what God has done. Look how good it is. There ain't anything gooder. Yes, we do want to live lives that are holy and set apart and reflect Christ more and more. Of course we do. Of course we do. We don't want to conflate that into this Jesus plus something is salvation. We want to hold up Jesus also and not just merely the benefits. We want to be a people that make much of Jesus and that will lead to all. If we are a people that makes much of all, all that will lead to is law. This is how you have all at this church. It's not about the benefit. It's about Jesus. And when Jesus is at the center, we get all the benefits. So we labor together to make much of Jesus because guess what, folks? He's worth it. And that's not just my opinion. I mean, you've got to take Colossians 2, 11 through 15. I don't know anything better than this. I don't have anything better to offer in it nothing better than this. So we need to know that Jesus is worth it. Not everyone in here will feel awe in the same way, and that's okay. The point isn't awe. The point is Jesus. The point is Jesus. And when Jesus is the point, when we see he is sufficient for us, it will transform a few things. First, it will transform what we know. The sufficiency of Jesus for the church transforms our heads by revealing to us the character of God. Remember, he is the fullness of God dwelling bodily. There isn't anything missing in Jesus. Jesus is our means of being restored right with God. So it is through Jesus that we know God. And so as Jesus is the center of our awe, if he's the center of our church, it is then we find him sufficient then to transform our heads so that through the person and work of Jesus, we come to a greater knowledge of God, something that we couldn't do without him. I love 2 Peter 3.18. It's a prayer at the end of Peter's letter, and he says this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to keep on growing and knowing. Our heads are transformed to know the grace and greatness of Jesus in increasing measure. Let's be a people that are eager for that. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but throughout our lives, in each other's lives. So it transforms who, what we know. Secondly, it transforms who we are. It transforms who we are. The sufficiency of Jesus for the church transforms our hearts by revealing to us the love of God. You realize that Jesus endures everything that we read in Colossians 2, 11 through 15, overcoming broken uh, relationship, uh, our spiritual deadness, uh, the spiritual debt that we have, and the evil forces at work in between us and God. He, over, he takes all that on and a shameful, bloody, embarrassing death on a cross and goes into a tomb and then overcomes the tomb. You realize he did all of that? As an overflow of love. He wasn't handed a, a, a memo, inner office memo, 
in the divine office that he begrudgingly takes, and oh, i got to do this on Saturday. No, this is the overflow of God's love for his people. This, this transforms who you are. You were once a rebellious orphan, caught up in the world, rejecting God and living in opposition against him, as if he either didn't exist or he was the bad guy. And he overcame that in you so as that you could be orphaned into, or, or, or adopted into his family and called a beloved son and tr- precious treasure daughter. That's what he has done through Christ. Jesus takes all this on for you because of love. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ, Colossians 2, 11 through 15 for us. It transforms who we are. We feel loveless in many ways. We feel isolated. We feel alone, insignificant, except when we come to the cross then we see the, the amazing, awe-inspiring love of God. It transforms who we are. And then thirdly, quickly, transforms what we do. The insufficiency of Christ. Flood our hearts, our worship, our community, our mission with awe transforms what we do. Transforms our lives by equipping us for ministry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was, had lived in a remarkable life in an incredible moment in history. He was a follower of Christ in a bad era of Germany. He lost his life to the Nazis. He was imprisoned, and while there, was banding the church together. You want to talk about costly gospel community. And when he did that, he, he wrote a little book called Life Together. And in that, there's this little phrase that he turned that just sticks with me. Talking about the church together, he says, we are to be a people committed to being bringers of the message of salvation to one another. What do we do together? When we're together, what do we do? Is the community that we experience a a community of people that are bringers of the message of salvation to one another. Together, in our worship, in our community, and does it fuel then our thoughts on mission? Mission where we live, work, play. Mission that we see across this globe. That we would be a bringers, bringers of the message of salvation kind of people. That we'd be equipped to do that. That we'd know the gospel intimately. That we'd care deeply about the souls of other people whether they know Jesus or not, that we'd care deeply enough to be a bringer of the message of salvation in their life. That we would commit to that. Live that out. When we see Jesus as sufficient, when we see Colossians 2, 11 through 15, as awe-inspiring, wonderfully sufficient for us, it informs and transforms what we do. So that Ephesians 4, 12 becomes all the more real. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. But that's what we would be. So let us then be a people who have hearts and heads and lives filled with awe. And when we look at and see Christ in the pages of Scripture, 
Let us be a people who labor together to fight against all amnesia. That we would be a people that would get together and be so excited to see one another because we get to be bringers of the message of salvation. We get to gather together and say, we have Jesus. This week was awful. I can't turn on the news. The internet needs to burn to the ground. I don't like people. But we have Jesus. That when we come together, we're able to say, we have Jesus. And Jesus is enough. And Jesus is sufficient. And Jesus will always be. He won't diminish. And He won't, di- he won't forsake us. We have Him. And by having Him, we have it all. May we not be an all amnesiac kind of church. What He has done is awesome. So let us press in to kn- together to know Him, to make Him known, and to live as if He really is awesome. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do this work in us because we are desperate for it. Whether we admit our desperation or not, the reality is we are desperate for it. Left to ourselves is broken fellowship with you. Left to ourselves is spiritual deadness. Left to ourselves is a debt that we could never pay. Left to ourselves is just submitted underneath these enemies we could never overcome. And yet through Christ, you have done it. You have done what we could never do and brought us to where we could never go and call us what we would never be because Jesus is sufficient and he is awesome. And God, may our heads and our hearts, our lives, our families, our churches, may we know it and live in light of it. And may others come to know it too. May others come to know the awesome grace and power and glory and nearness of Christ in their lives. May you bring about the radical rescue of lost people here in Nashville. May we be a place, a people, in which you do that work through. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.